I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. And I want to also um, assure you that the sermon will not be ending this week at 1135, uh, because that's in 15 minutes. So, <laughs> uh, Eric served us so well last week, and uh, it'll be different this week. Daniel chapter 5, I think I said 4, I should know what I'm preaching from. Daniel chapter 5, as you turn in there, um, we saw in Daniel 4, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar actually sharing his testimony. It was written by him, and at the height of his prosperity and power, God warns him in a dream that it'll all come crashing down if he doesn't humble himself, and he doesn't, and so God strips his kingdom away. And he gets him to a point where he finally recognizes that God alone is king and that all his ways are just and right and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. And as we come into chapter 5, today's story makes a similar point, but it has a different outcome. Today's king does not humble himself and instead God's judgment comes upon him. And so this morning's sermon is titled, The Hand of the One Who Wrote on the Wall. What I'm getting at with that is... It's not just the writing on the wall. That's a common expression. But I want to look at the, the God who, whose hand wrote on the wall. What, what do we learn about, not what do we try to decipher in the text on the wall, but what do we learn of the God who wrote on the wall? Daniel 5. And I know as we go through Daniel, uh, we read large chunks out loud. And I just, every time we do, I know it's a long time to read this scripture out loud, but I just think of the New Testament exhortation to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. So as we read this out loud, and it takes a few minutes, that's what we're doing. We're publicly reading the scripture and letting God's word speak over us and prepare us to receive from him. So this is the word of the Lord. King Belshazzar made a great feast for thousands of his lords, and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, 
enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought in from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But, as but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of man, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind, and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. God, may you bless the preaching of your word, that it may land on us with life-giving power that it is intended to have for us. Feed us this morning. And give us more than my mere man, humanly words can give. Feed us more than what, what my words can do, God. And speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, Daniel 5 is what we call a warning passage or a judgment passage. And these can be difficult to interpret and apply. 
I remember as a teenager reading through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos, and at that time in my life, I was steeped in the likes of Leonard Ravenhill and David Wilkerson and had listened to their audio cassettes and read all of their books. And I'm reading these judgment passages and and coming to conclusions like the church is the whore in these passages. And this is what God's going to do to the church and to America. As if I, as a teenager, were in any position to evaluate the state of the evangelical church at large. I mean, come on. And worse, the call of Jeremiah, I was seeing as God's personal call to me. Like where God says, I will make my word in you a fire and the people, the wood it consumes. And I'm like, yes, that's my calling in life. I'm going to rain down God's fire on the church in America. I'm going to be his instrument of judgment because I'm so sick of it like the prophets were sick of it. You know, it never dawned on me that the very self-righteousness and hypocrisy that the judgment passages were addressing lived right there inside of me. And I read those passages now, 20 years later, and I find that I have much more in common with the people they're addressing than with the mouthpieces that the address came through. And the proof that I was failing to see my own self-righteousness and hypocrisy in that was how I was misapplying them and applying them to the, all the horrible people out there and failing to acknowledge the pride and self-righteous right here. So, I'm probably not the only one who can fall prey to this error. As we read about this king's judgment and death, certainly there will be application for evil kings and rulers out there, but might it be that God wants to address the false security and presumption that lives inside of each of us? Let's make no mistake, for anyone who's been born again by the Spirit of God, we love the line in the song, no wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by His saving grace. Yes, but isn't it true too that the sins of King Belshazzar can still show up in each of our hearts? And it's actually loving of God when He helps us see that so we can turn to Him rather than persist in our error, persist in our folly. Destroy ourselves, destroy our relationship with God. No, it's God's kindness that helps us see these things so that we can turn to him. And this has been a running theme throughout Daniel. Eric gave a a great summary last week of the first few chapters when he said, Daniel 1 and 2 shows us that God is able to prosper those who walk in faithfulness. Daniel 3 shows us God is able to protect those who walk through trials. Daniel 4, God's able to humble those who walk in pride. And today we will see in Daniel 5 that God will bring judgment on anyone who rejects his authority. It's a very simple main point, but that's a clear point from chapter 5 that God will bring judgment on anyone who rejects his authority. Now the scary thing though is that there are all kinds of ways that both unbelievers and believers alike can reject his authority. Non-Christians do so ultimately But even we who are Christians can do so in a thousand little ways. And so today we'll look at a few. The first, the vanity of false security. The scene is set for us in verses 1 through 12, telling us about this great feast. Now this is many years after chapter 4, and so some time has passed. It's, it's clear from how this party goes that King Belshazzar is portrayed in stark contrast to 
King Nebuchadnezzar and the way chapter four ends. Obviously, this is a way different kind of guy. Um, He was probably not around when King Nebuchadnezzar was in power because many years had passed, but no doubt he had heard the stories. He had heard the uh, encounters. In fact, when Daniel explains it to him, he points back and says, and you knew all this, he tells him. You you knew it. So King Belshazzar knew what had happened. Um, And in fact, when he shows up in verse 13, the king actually recognizes, oh, you're the Daniel guy that did this stuff for this other king that came before me and... And, you know, Belshazzar probably had heard about the three teenagers that God had preserved in the fiery furnace. Although he was a Gentile king, he was definitely around the people of God and the things of God enough to know what was sacred and profane. But apparently, he felt total confidence in engaging in drunkenness and debauchery and idol worship. Now, as Eric said last week, the Bible never says God helps those who help themselves. But in fact, what we see here and actually throughout scripture, is that God judges those who help themselves. He doesn't help those. He judges those who help themselves. Helping himself was the king's problem. In other words, the king stood on his own confidence and efforts and achievements. This party was a chance to showcase his money and power and all that he achieved, all the ways that he had helped himself in life. This is why kings of old threw parties. They got the best people on the guest list because this was their chance to show off everything that they had. It would be a huge demonstration of how great he was. And so, what does he do? This is the goal of the party. So then, he knew that when you're throwing a party like this, if you want to get tons tons of likes and comments in the middle of a crazy party like this, you got to do something really scandalous. Like, pull out the sacred vessels from the Jerusalem temple and drink from them. I mean, the fact that he knew this was going to get a rise out of people goes to show the fact that he knew the importance of these items. It wasn't like, oh, we ran out of cups, just grab the ones from the temple. No, he knew what was going on. He knew exactly what he was doing. So, when he did this, this was not a utilitarian, practical hospitality thing. This was him shoving his fist in God's face. He was confident he could get away with it. That's the scary thing. This is the vanity of false security. This is the kind of false security that the the prophets warn about in the Old Testament. Isaiah 47.10 says, You felt secure in your wickedness, and you said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. You said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, you for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. The New Testament even affirms this in Romans 1.21 when it describes the unbelieving state that says, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. See, false assurance is a real problem for professing Christians today. Now just think with me here. Certainly God wants us to grow in our assurance of salvation if we're saved, for sure. Believers often struggle with assurance. And the Bible addresses us to help us grow in our assurance. The book of 1 John is a great resource to help us grow in that. But the Bible also warns us about being falsely secure as this king was. So what does false assurance look like? Well, what it looked like for this king 
was carrying on in persistent sin without any regard for God's commands. It's assuming, for example, that God is fine with whatever I'm doing and I can get away with it. After all, God is patient and understanding, right? They assume. Falsely secure people think that means that God is more like the parent who always threatens but never delivers. He's more like the the chihuahua who just barks and barks and barks, but as soon as you go like that, they're like, the chihuahua backs up. Like, that's more what God is like. He he acts like he's going to do something, but he's not really. He's not really going to hurt you. They, They think God is like that, and they go on living life under this different kind of God than the God of the Bible. In fact, it's a It's a God that has been made into their own image, who's much smaller than me, and actually backs away when I show aggression. The falsely secure people shape and tame God into a different kind of God than the God of the Bible, and they go on living life as if the God of their imagination is actually the true God. This is what Romans means. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Oh, Christian, take heart today. God wants you to grow in assurance so that you're not tossed about by doubts and fears all the time. And he does this by helping you grow as you make every effort to walk in holiness and make your calling and election sure. But listen, assurance does not come on the path of presumption. And say that again. You will not arrive at assurance by taking the path of presumption. Be not deceived. God will not be mocked. His grace is not to be trifled with. May we be a people who struggle against sin, not tolerate it. Who work hard to walk in holiness. Who don't make light of God's judgment or the Bible's warnings against false insurance. But who take those things very seriously. And isn't it wonderful that God wonderfully receives us in our struggles against sin. And he helps us. But he will bring divine judgment on anyone who rejects his authority. Not to be taken lightly. Not only was this king walking in false security, but he was ignoring God's past grace. Point number two, the folly of ignoring God's grace. Daniel shows up in verse 13, and he recounts the past grace of God at work in the kingdom, in the kingship, in the people. Goes through a lot of history. We went through that in chapter 4, so I'm not going to dive into too much detail there. But he points out two things. He points out God's past grace in Nebuchadnezzar, and he points out God's present grace in the king's life. So we're going to look at those two. First, God's past grace. In chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar again shares his testimony about how at the height of his prosperity and power, God warns him in a dream that it will all come crashing down if he doesn't humble himself. And he answers God by actually defending the kingdom that he is built by his mighty power. That was King Nebuchadnezzar's initial response. Sound familiar to King Belshazzar? But God strips it all the way, all away. This great king comes to recognize that God alone is king at the end of chapter 4 and that all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. Now in chapter 5, we have another king several years later and as is often the case, the next later generations assume and ultimately abandon the faith of those that came before them. Even though King Nebuchadnezzar had taken vessels of gold and silver out of the temple after its collapse and had preserved them, Belshazzar throws a huge party. No doubt he and his guests are just 
getting drunk and they pull out these sacred items and begin to drink from them. Verse four, they begin to praise false gods. So they're profaning the name of the Lord, the one to whom he owes his life and engaging in idol worship. So it's a clear picture that what his predecessor had come to revere and respect, this king had no regard for. The lessons the predecessor had learned, the humbling he went through, the eventual recognition of the one true God as the rightful ruler, preserver, sustainer, prosper, and keeper of king and kingdoms, all of that had no effect on this king until a mysterious hand started writing on the wall. That got his attention. I bet it did. Another principle we see in Scripture is the folly, the foolishness of ignoring God's past grace. What happened to his predecessor didn't matter to this king. He was going to do things his way. After all, that was then. This is now. Times have changed. They don't get us. That was, that was a thing back then, but I know what's up today, and they don't. Well, we may not have sacred objects from the Old Testament temple or relics from the cross or the saints that came before us, but we too can walk in arrogance to the point of ignoring the work of God in the lives of the saints of old and think that the work of God in their life has no relevance for us today. We can assume that we stand on no one's shoulders or that our time and day is so different than those that came before us that we really have nothing to learn from them. I mean, that's the same level of arrogance that marked this king and ultimately led to his downfall. Oh, let this be a warning to us. How do we regard those who have gone before us? Do we have anything to learn from church history? Do you have anything to learn from the faith of your parents or grandparents if they were saved? Maybe they didn't do church exactly the way you do, but is there nothing that you can learn from their faith? Do you have anything to learn from the other believers in this room who are more mature than you are, who have been Christians longer than you have? I love singing this morning with some of our older saints and thinking about, you know, we're standing behind Terry Sajad, who's here worshiping God. And it's one thing for me to say, none above you, none before you, all of time in your hands. But to see an older saint singing that, He's seen a lot more than I have. And he says, all of time is in your hands. That stirs my faith. I'm built up by singing, singing our songs with the older saints. So older saints, you are a gift to our church. I love hearing you sing. And my faith is stirred when I hear that. May we not ignore the faith of our older saints. May May we submit, humbly learn from them. And allow God to change us and to challenge us and to rock us out of our own self-confidence. That's what this king needed. Do we think that we can build our own kingdom and live our own way and grow our faith all on our own? No. As we learned last week, those who walk in that kind of pride, God is able to humble. God showed mercy to King Nebuchadnezzar and brought him way down low to help him learn this lesson. But when Belshazzar ignored all of that and went his own way, He invited God's judgment. But it wasn't just God's grace in the past that Daniel appeals to. He he appeals to God's grace in his present life as well. He points out that God holds your very breath in his hand and all your ways belong to him. Do you see that in verse 23? You owe your very existence to him. He's telling him, oh king, you are reveling in drunkenness and worshiping false gods. Look at verse 23. Which you do not see or hear or know. 
which do not see or hear or know. But God, the one true God, he's the one who holds your breath. Not these false gods. He grants life to you and sustains your very existence. And at any moment, he can take it from you. This is the God the king has not honored. Now, how is that supposed to make us feel as we read that? That God holds our breath in his hand too. For one of our sons, at one point, this dawned on him as a terrifying thought. You mean at any moment God could withhold the breath of life? He could decide without any notice that he is done with me and my life would be over just like that? That is a terrifying and fatalistic thought. It makes me feel powerless. Yet, it is, it is true. We don't keep our hearts beating. We don't ensure that the atmosphere maintains the perfect blend of oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide to sustain life on our planet. God alone sustains life, and we are dependent on Him for the very air we breathe. He holds our breath in His hand, it says. Yet this thought should bring us great comfort and confidence, actually, that God alone gives and takes life. No enemy of God ever has the last word. No doctor, no cancer, no tragedy, no uh, hotel collapse has the last word. God holds life in his hands. And this should be a great comfort for us that whatever tragedy comes our way is no accident. It's no exertion of enemy power. What God permits in our life, God sees to be good. And that can be hard for us to recognize, but no enemy of God has the last word. If I'm alive today and still breathing, it's because God has willed it. And he has a plan and a purpose for you. Every breath you take, every moment you live, you receive that as an expression of God's grace and kindness to you. It's what it is. We, in, on one hand, it is trembling to think that God could take the breath of life away from us at any moment. On the other hand, it should be a great comfort that when he doesn't, it's because he's up to something. If you're an unbeliever, maybe he's giving you time to turn to him in repentance and faith and forsake the ways of your ancestor, King Belshazzar, your spiritual ancestor who walked in pride and arrogance and would not bow the knee before a holy God. It's God's kindness to let you keep living. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Do we realize all it takes is one sin? One sin, that's all it takes. And God can rightly, instantly condemn us to hell forever because we have broken his law. But the fact that he lets us keep living, oh, it shows he is patient. He's not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So every moment post-sin that we are still breathing, we have to realize is God's kindness and mercy to us. He holds our breath in his hands, and he sovereignly rules over all our ways. May we not ignore this grace, this present grace. To do so would be folly on our part. And God will bring divine judgment on all who persist in ignoring this grace. Because King Belshazzar was walking in false security and ignoring this past and present grace, divine judgment was on its way. Point number three, the certainty of coming judgment. So in the story, the meaning of the words was given. It was written in Aramaic. It's not that nobody then knew Aramaic. Um, there's a lot of speculation about those words. But the king, what the king was asking for is the interpretation. So this is the difference between translation and interpretation. Those are not synonyms. Uh, he didn't need it translated. He needed it interpreted. He needed the meaning, the sense of it to be given. 
Um, what, what is the significance of these words? I can read the words, but what, what does this mean? And Daniel summarizes it. Your kingdom's coming to an end. You've been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting. We just saw the reasons why. Uh, and in three, your kingdom will be divided up between the Medes and Persians. Now, despite the doom and gloom of this message, the king keeps his promise and honors Daniel. But of course, it's very short-lived, like only a few hours, because that very night, the king was killed, and Darius the Mede, a new king, took his place. And it's interesting that uh, historical records outside the Bible actually affirm a lot of these events. They provide even more details about it. Babylon was a fortified city with impenetrable walls and built on the river Euphrates. So the, the, river, the walls were double wall thick, and the river went under the walls and ran through the city. And during the king's party, it's recorded that the Persian army was secretly camped out along the banks of the river that night and had sent soldiers upstream to dam the river. And when the water level had dropped low enough, they went in under the walls and came into the middle of this great feast when everyone was drunk and distracted and invaded the city, took over, the king was stabbed by a sword and killed. All of that is affirmed outside the Bible and uh, as well here. Daniel doesn't give us the details because the details of that event are not what's relevant. What's relevant is God's divine judgment. Through the instrumentality of men, here's our point, God governs the world in a way that ensures his intended ends are met. So did his invading army kill the king or did God kill the king? Yes. The king's death was God's judgment on his persistent prideful ways, but the instrument that brought about that judgment was the actions of the invading army. That's how God works. God so sovereignly, sovereignly governs and rules over the affairs of men that he is able to use the actions of men to bring about his purposes. Now, if this was a small group, I would say, and what's the best example of that? And you would say, the cross. At the cross, we see the judgment of God being poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, Isaiah says. Remember, the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the world. And yet the instrument that brought about the death of Christ, at least from our perspective, was the free actions of those who crucified him. So Peter could say in his sermon to the crowds, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified... And he would be right. So God is not merely reacting to the surprising evil that takes place around us. He doesn't wait and see how bad it's going to get and then acts. He's not the, the better chess player who can always make the better move than you did. So he's always gaining a, a foothold, getting a better ground each time, waiting to see what you're going to do. That, that's not how it is. He's not merely turning evil for good. He is using evil to bring about his eternal purposes. Again, where do we see the, what's the proof of this? The cross, the worst evil in human history, the crucifixion of the Son of God is the, the spot, the event that God brings the greatest good out of all of human history. If he can do that through the cross, he can do that through anything else. So he is using this to bring about his eternal purposes. John Calvin comments on this passage in this way. Hence, we may seek consolation when we see tyrants rushing on so impetuously and indulging their lust and cruelty without moderation. Let us remember this instruction. Their years are numbered. God knows how long they are to rage. He is not deceived. He knows, great line here, pay attention to this. He knows whether it is useful to the church and his elect for tyrants to prevail for a time. By and by, he will surely restrain them. 
But since he determined the number of their days from the beginning, the time of his vengeance is not yet quite at hand. Very, very well said. God knows what he's doing when he allows tyrants to rule in rage. He has a purpose in allowing evil to pervade and, and even to appear to triumph and often to appear to triumph longer than we're comfortable with. But he's not fretting about it like we are. <laughs> he is in that delay accomplishing all his sovereign purposes. So again, the history here, several kings had come and gone between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. It's estimated that Daniel at this point in the story is in his 80s. The people of God are still exiles in the evil Babylonian empire. So why the delay? Why so long, O Lord? Not only may the original readers find comfort in seeing that God's judgment of evil and prideful rulers is certain and thorough, the certainty of coming judgment. Not only can they take comfort in that, but we can take comfort in that as well. Judgment fell on this king and on others like him, and coming judgment is certain. But at this point in the Bible storyline, God's people would remain in exile. And so even with the certainty of coming judgment, we just, we, we long for more. And many points in the Bible, when you read your Bible and you're going through the Bible storyline, always realize that revelation is progressive. God's not going to answer it at every stage of redemptive history. At, at the st- this stage of redemptive history, in, in 586 BC or so is where we're at, the story leaves us longing for more. And that's a good thing. Because a little less than 500 years later, God's judgment would fall again. Not on a prideful, self-reliant tyrant of a king, but on the perfect, pure, innocent son of God. The judgment that fell on him would result in liberation of his people from sin. It would satisfy the wrath of God that they deserved because of their sin. It would establish a means by which man can be freed from spiritual lockdown and enter into eternal freedom through Jesus. Just as the coming judgment on Belshazzar was certain, the judgment that fell on Jesus, standing as a substitute in our place, For the judgment we deserved was not only certain, it was complete. It was a once and for all kind of judgment. It established a new covenant. It ushered in a new kingdom. It created a new people constituted on new terms, namely on faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And all who look to this king who took the divine judgment on our behalf can be saved from the certainty of future judgment. This is our hope, Christian. But for all who reject the free gift of salvation. Judgment and wrath do remain. And Daniel 5 shows us that when you think things are fine and you don't think you need God, you think I've gotten to this point all on my own and I'm going to keep it going, thank you very much, and I'll call on you, I'll pull the holy vessels out when I need you, when it serves my purposes, but I stand on my own two feet. That, that is such a prevalent temptation for us. When we stand in that false security, when we ignore God's past warnings and past grace, which again is folly, then we too can be certain of a coming judgment. May it not be. Turn and live, the Bible calls us to. Turn and live. The judgment has already fallen on Jesus for you. If you will look to him in faith and fall into his arms, 
And forsake your own self-reliance, your own self-dependence and arrogance. Bring your total spiritual bankruptcy to him and surrender to his rule and authority. Oh, this is what you were made for. And then you can sing with us. No wrath remains for us to face. I'm sheltered by his saving grace. Judgment is certain. But when we come to Jesus, the certainty of that judgment fell on him that it might not fall on us. Why would you die? The Bible says, why? Look, live. If you reject Christ, the certainty of judgment will land on you when God has provided a way through Jesus. May we surrender to his rule and authority in our lives. That is what we were made for. Now, we should understand this is not a passage about, Pastor Billy's pointed this out well throughout our study. This is not a passage about how we should have the courage of Daniel to stand before kings and announce judgment. That was my error in the way I read it 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, that, that's, yeah, we need to like hellfire and brimstone on America, you know, kind of stuff. This is a warning passage. But it's a warning passage that should make us ask, are we walking in false security? If we're walking in false security, presuming upon the grace of God, oh, hear the warning from Scripture today that judgment is coming for all who walk in a security of their own making. And hear the comfort of Scripture, that there is one who is judged for you, and you can turn to him in faith and repentance. So we're wrapping this up. That was a summary of point one. What about the next one? Have you presumed upon God's past grace and walked foolishly in the light of your own achievements and musings? Oh, hear the warning from Scripture today. That, God, that God's judgment is coming for those who presume upon God's grace. But also hear the call from Scripture today to look to Jesus and see the work of God in biblical past and historical past and let that work have its intended effect on your faith in a way that preserves you and sustains you. Or perhaps you've presumed upon God's present grace in your life right now. Oh, hear the warning from Scripture that at any moment God can bring judgment upon such presumption. And hear the call from Scripture to honor God, the God who holds your breath in His hands and holds your ways in His hands. In short, let's look to Him and cast our empty, weak selves upon Him, acknowledging the ways in which we have ignored and presumed and dishonored Him. And let's receive the grace of forgiveness For listen, the hand that writes on walls announcing judgment is the same hand that was pierced in judgment for your iniquities. And it's the same hand that holds your breath. And it's the same hand that will receive you when you come to him in faith, forsaking all self-righteousness, all self-reliance, and humbly bowing before him. Let's stand. Eric, if you have a song, you've got three minutes. Oh, Lord, thank you for this reality that the hand that wrote on the wall in judgment is the hand that was pierced for sin, is the hand that holds our breath, is the hand that welcomes us and receives us, and this hand imagery would be carried forward in Jesus who says, all that the Father has given me are mine and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Lord, we confess our dependence upon you, our neediness, our emptiness, how weak and helpless and hopeless we are apart from you. Oh, how we need you. 
where we bring you our, our sin, our struggles, our failure. I pray for anyone who is walking in a false sense of security that your word this morning will have awakened them to look to you in faith and live. I pray for genuine believers who just genuinely, honestly struggle with assurance. Oh God, assure their hearts. Assure their hearts that they are yours. You hold them in your hand. You hold their breath in your hand. You long for them to bask in the good of the assurance of their salvation. What we want, God, is for believers struggling with assurance to grow in assurance and for unbelievers struggling with false assurance to be awakened out of their false assurance. So that's a work we are looking to you to do, God. Please do that and show us how we can apply this individually. In Jesus' name, amen.